This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And um, during the week, now that I'm off, I've had a lovely week of vacation. But we will be back on Fox Business Network on Monday, Monday through Fridays, 4 to 5 p.m., Name the show's Cudlow, and we welcome all comers. If you can't get there at four, you can always text your favorite nine-year-old who will um, <clears throat> teach you how to DVR the show. You'll never miss a thing. The show does replay at seven. And here on radio, you can live stream us on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, live stream us all across the country around the world, throughout the solar system, including the Milky Way. So, again, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. The quintessential American holiday. I guess the first Thanksgiving proclamation for you history buffs, 1789, President George Washington, one of our greatest of the greats. And uh, 1863, another of the greatest of the greats, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a national thanksgiving to be held every November. So, I hope everybody had a great holiday. I hope you're still having a great holiday. And I wish you all happy Thanksgiving. And now I want to turn to the news of the day, the tough news of the day. And of course, uh, all eyes are on the Israeli-Hamas uh, hostage deal. And we will see how this thing goes. This is a wonderful thing for the women and children, the Israeli women and children, released uh, by Hamas, by the terrorists Hamas. So we will celebrate that. And I know throughout Israel, celebrations are going on. But it's a tough deal for Israel. Let's make no mistake about that. It's a very tough deal for Israel. You have at least the outlines of the deal, roughly 50 Israeli hostages to be released by Hamas, some 150 uh, Palestinian hostages released by Israel, women and children released uh, by Hamas, but uh, 150 or so under 18 and female operatives from Israel. 
It doesn't seem like there's much balance there, but that's the deal. <clears throat> Israel willing to make the deal. More or less 10 hostages per day in return for a, um, a temporary ceasefire. A pause. We will see how this plays out. We will see how this plays out, but one of the most troubling parts of this, to me at least, and others, is that Hamas, in some sense, the terrorist Hamas, the murder Hamas, they get to set the timetable. I mean, if they dribble out six hostages here, eight hostages, ten hostages, what uh, is supposed to be, I guess, a four-day uh, ceasefire might linger, might be 10 days, might be two weeks. And um, that's not helpful to Israel. The enemy gets to set the terms of the pause and they could extend the pause if they want to. And of course, Hamas, terrorists, murderers, liars, they will use this to resupply, refuel so-called humanitarian aid coming in across the Rafah border with Egypt. Hamas runs everything down there, don't they? So this is very much to their benefit. Some of these Hamas uh, terrorists will escape. They may use this ceasefire to escape. I think the term of art is exfiltrate. I think that's the term of art, exfiltrate. Escape to Egypt? I don't know, escape to the West Bank? Refortify tunnels? I mean, Israel, is, Israel has so much momentum going into this so-called ceasefire momentum to ultimately annihilate Hamas, which is what all civilized people want Israel to do, the only democracy in the Middle East, America's great ally. I don't know how this is going to play out. More fuel and aid into Gaza for Hamas. Hamas could extend the deadline. Who knows how they'll play this out. I don't think it's a great deal, but Israel knows what it's doing. Israel knows exactly what it's doing. And to be sure, according to some strategists at least, it will give Israel a chance for themselves to regroup, having swept through northern Gaza, Gaza City, having shown, by the way, that... Uh, the Al-Shifa hospital was a command and control center for Hamas. Hamas denied it. Of course, um, of course, they've been proven to liars again. Good story, by the way, Carl and McCoy in the um, New York Sun. Good story about that. Somehow all the human rights groups are overlooking the fact that Hamas lied. Israel told the truth command and control underneath the hospital. That's what they do, of course. We know that. Human shields. Disgusting. Terrorist. Criminal. Murderous. But Israel will have a chance, I suppose, to regroup, and they will get ready for the next leg of their 
annihilation mission into southern Gaza. And that is all to the good. That is all to the good. And then there's a story that nobody likes. I don't know whether this is this is coming off of Breitbart, but it's a direct quote. Biden hints at conditioning aid to Israel on reducing bombs in Gaza. President Joe Biden on Friday hinted that he was considering conditioning aid to Israel on its military reducing bombing in Gaza in its offensive against the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas. During a press conference Friday, yesterday, a reporter asked him, Mr. President, are there members of your party who would like to see conditions placed on aid to Israel? What is your view on that? They would like to see, you know, a reduction in the bombing and that sort of thing. And Biden indicated it could be considered later down the road. Quote, well, I think I think that's a worthwhile thought, but I don't think if I started off with that, we'd ever gotten to where we are today, he said, adding we have to take this a piece at a time. All right. At least he backed off for now. I have no doubt that members of his own administration would love to condition aid to Israel. No doubt. None whatsoever. Biden, of course, has trouble with the left wing of his party. He's got all these crazy people, the leader Rashid, and all these crazy people, uh, Hamas supporters, hate Israel, anti-Semitic. His poll numbers are going down among young people who, for the life of me, I don't understand, but young people who do not know the facts seem to be some, some young people at least on the college campuses in particular, but in some of the streets of New York and other cities favoring Hamas, which is pure insanity. I'll talk about more of that as the show goes on. But at least Biden demurred for the moment of placing any conditionality uh, on Israel. So there you have it. A lot of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is not an Israeli holiday particularly. It's an American holiday. I'm sure some in Israel celebrate Thanksgiving and I am I am sure that the release of the first round of hostages brings joy to the hearts of the Israelis. That is a good thing. That is good. It is good. They deserve some joy in the middle of a war a war they did not begin. Hamas cannot be excused for anything. For anything. And we will see how this whole ceasefire plays out. We're going to take a break now. We have, uh, by the way, former National Security Advisor, the great Robert O'Brien, will be on at the half hour. We're going to spend uh, that whole half hour with Ambassador O'Brien and talk about uh, how he sees this. He himself was a uh, State Department hostage negotiator, knows lots and lots about this entire story, much more than I do. 
We'll see what Robert O'Brien has to say. We're going to take a quick commercial break here. When we come back, I want to raise the issue of Iran. The United States continues to appease Iran. Amidst all these discussions about uh, hostage releases and the war, Iran and its terrorist proxies have bombed U.S. military assets. I don't know how many hits they've had, 70 hits? I didn't see anything in this morning papers what the latest number is, but we have done a thing about it, have we? Not really done a thing about it. So we'll talk about that. And um, and then we'll talk about some wonderful Biden gaslighting about Thanksgiving holidays, how to stop those terrible MAGA relatives from spewing forth terrible MAGA stuff. Oh, MAGA, that's pro-Trump. There, I said it. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So I want to read, I have to move my mic around so I can get to my computer. Uh, No American uh, hostages were released. I don't want to leave that out. I'm reading from the New York Times uh, byline, Vimal Patel. Families of the Americans being held hostage by Hamas must wait longer to find out if their relatives will be among those released. President Biden said earlier this week that he expected the ceasefire deal between Hamas and Israel to result in American hostages returning home. They were not among the 24 people Hamas released in the first round on Friday. The ceasefire deal calls for Hamas to return 50 women and children in phases over four days while Israel will release 150 imprisoned or detained Palestinians. At a news conference Friday, President Biden said he did not know when American hostages would be released, but that officials, quote, expect it to occur, end quote. He added that he did not know the conditions of the 10 Americans who are unaccounted for, and he did not say how many he expected would be freed over the next three scheduled days of release. Well... President Biden called the Friday release, quote, the start of a process. I raise that because there hasn't been enough discussion of those American hostages, has there? Not near enough. Which leads me to a related point, and that is um, the Iranian terrorist proxy attacks on American military roughly 70 attacks as far as I know there may be more that story is not being covered at least today somewhat blocked out by the uh, hostage release but it would be nice to hear Mr. Biden be a little stronger about releasing Americans that is of course an act of war and so is the attacks on American military assets in the region an act of war we are at war with Iran Iran has said a million times they're at war with the United States. But the Bidens are in denial that the United States is at war with Iran. We are. Iran wants to destroy Israel and destroy America. They've said it many times. Which leads to, of course, the utter stupidity of the American... Biden administration attempts 
to reach some kind of nuclear deal with Iran, which in many ways is the precursor to this entire horrible Hamas war. But the Bidens sheepishly don't want to talk about that anymore. So that means I need to talk about that. The Biden administration, picking up where the Obama administration left off, has appeased Iran for years. The original nuclear deal, terrible deal that it was, was conducted, implemented by the Obamas. Trump killed the deal. Trump, by the way, killed the leading Iranian terror master, Soleimani. Killed him. Trump bankrupted Iran by implementing tough sanctions. Oil revenues virtually nil. Foreign exchange reserves virtually nil. The Bidens come in, try to restart the deal. By the way, their lead negotiator was an Iranian cutout named Robert Malley, who lost his security clearance in the State Department. They won't tell us why. And he has, this Malley guy has at least one proxy, a woman, who is the chief of staff of one of the assistant defense secretaries for special operations, no less, reading all the cable traffic to and from. Go figure all that. Appeasement never works. We learned it in the 1930s. We've learned it ever since. Remember Ronald Reagan? We win, you lose. That was to communist Soviet Union. The Bidens don't understand that kind of toughness. Trump understood it. Other American presidents have understood it, but the Bidens do not understand it. We need deterrence. We need, as I've said many times on the radio and the TV, we need to sink a ship. We need to bomb an oil field. We need to bomb training centers in Iran or command and control to send Iran a message. America will not tolerate terrorism. That's one of the things missing from this conversation. I'm Kudla. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We bring in dear friend Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor during the Trump administration, now Chairman of American Global Strategies, and I want to add uh, himself, Mr. O'Brien, a former hostage negotiator. Uh, Robert O'Brien, welcome back to the show. Thanks, everything, for doing this. Um, 
I might add happy, happy Thanksgiving, you and Low Marie. <laughs> great, that. great to be with you, Larry, and happy Thanksgiving to you and Judy and the family. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, one of the disturbing parts of the hostage swap here is that, to some extent, uh, Hamas is in charge of the timing of this. They sort of set the terms of the pause. They could dribble out hostages for Lord knows how long. And from your experience as a hostage negotiator, what do you make of this? Well, listen, the uh, the first thing, it's wonderful to see the Israelis come home. And if you want to have a, a bright morning, take a look on Twitter. There's a video of uh, Ohad Mander, the nine-year-old boy mm. who was released, racing down the hospital hallway to, to hug his dad. Mm. And it brings a smile to your face. And what it shows is it shows the humanity of, of the Israelis, of the Americans, of the, the way we live and the value we, we put on human life. And that, but, but we have to understand there's a flip side to the, the good news today, and that's the bad news that Hamas has scored a strategic, strategic victory. So is Iran. They've shown that hostage-taking works. Mm. They got three, three times the number of convicted or arrested terrorists released in exchange for innocent Israeli kids and, and women who were who ripped from their homes and taken to a foreign country, taken to Gaza. And so they got 3x the number of hostages, and they, they established a moral equivalency in the eyes of many between these terrorists that were released and the innocent hostages. They also received a pause in the the warfare, the, the prosecution of the operation to root out Hamas from Gaza. And so they, they achieved with hostages what they couldn't achieve with, with rockets and terrorists and, and fighters. And you're right, Larry, 100%. They're going to dribble out these hostages for a long time. They're going to get millions of dollars in humanitarian aid. And their ultimate goal is to stay in power in Gaza. And they're going to try and use these 240 hostages to create a, a, a lasting ceasefire that allows them to stay in place in Gaza and then resume attacks on Israel. So it's a wonderful morning for the hostages and for their families, and we welcome them home. Uh, it's, a, it's a bad day for uh the West and for Israel when it comes to the Hamas believing they have a big victory here. I mean, if you um, if you look at the numbers here, as you as you suggested, you'll have in theory. I don't know how this is going to play out, but in theory, uh, a four day ceasefire in return for roughly fifty. Um, Israeli, and I want to get to the American side also, um, but that will still leave close, to, you know, that still leaves whatever, 180 left out of the 240 or the 235 or whatever the right number is. So that gives Hamas, uh, you know, 180 chess pieces to play with and extend this thing and, of course, cater to world opinion, which is already moving against uh, Israel and one wonders about uh, opinion inside the Biden administration. Uh, those are not good odds, and um, suggest that Hamas really does have advantages here. No, they're using it just as like China has done with hostages in North Korea and in Russia, uh, with Evan Gershkowitz and uh, the, the Wall Street Journal reporter. The, the authoritarian and, and tyrants and dictators and terrorists use our, our love of humanity and our love of our people. Uh, against us, and uh, we have to play a different game. We uh, to, to stop this. Well, this this started, uh, Larry, in 1979 with the hostage taking in Iran mm. when they took our embassy and our diplomats hostage, and the Iranians have been playing this game ever since. And as you know, just recently we paid six billion dollars in ransom. Now 
the Biden administration the great pains to say it was sanctions relief, but it, like the Iranians looked at it as ransom, the whole world looked at it as ransom, the American people looked at it as ransom, and they paid six billion dollars for five American hostages. And I said at the time, I think I said it even on your show, there, there are two downsides to this. One, you you increase the value of future hostages and you encourage hostage taking because if you can get a billion per uh, U.S. passport. You know, why wouldn't countries do that? Take take hostages and and play them off and and get some sort of payment from us. But number two, what do they do with the money? I mean, that money is not going to children's hospitals in Iran. It's not going to to help the Iranian people. It's going to be used to fund hostage, further hostage taking terrorism. And what I didn't realize when I said that in mid September at the UNGA UN General Assembly is that within a month, Hamas would launch a major terrorist attack supported by Iran, and take 240 Israeli hostages, many of whom are Americans. So we, we see the, the fruits of this sort of ransom payments and lopsided prisoner exchanges, and it results in more hostage taking and more terrorism, and that's, that's very unfortunate. Is there any doubt in your mind? I mean, some success has uh, a lot of people crowing about it, but really, Robert O'Brien... It's the pr intense pressure and success of the Israeli war campaign that was for forced Hamas to come to the negotiating table, at least insofar as hostages are concerned. I mean, Qatar is involved, Egypt is involved, United States is involved, but I mean, it's Israel and the pressure, relentless pressure and success of their campaign, is it not? And you hate Larry, to Larry, see that no let up. No, no question about it, Larry. You're 100% of our target on that one. Uh, and look, we know this because one of my last cases I worked on as a the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs before becoming national security advisor was trying to get the remains of Hader Golden and uh, another IDF soldier out of Hamas. Now, this is a, an instance where Hamas had killed two IDF soldiers, dragged them back to Gaza through the tunnels, mm. and were keeping the remains for, for many years and trying to trade the remains uh, so that they could be buried and rest in peace in Israel uh, and have their family have some closure. But Hamas was using their remains to try and get uh, concessions from Israel. I was working on that case, and, and we were making no progress. If it hadn't been for the Israeli invasion of Gaza during this operation to root out the Hamas terrorists and, and destroy their tunnels and destroy their infrastructure, there's no way this would be happening, notwithstanding the good offices of Qatar and, and Egypt and efforts by the Americans to, to negotiate. But the other thing is here, Larry, we've got a bunch of Americans that are held hostage in mm -hmm. Gaza. Yes. Why weren't they released first? Uh, it just shows, shows the lack of respect that the uh, the terrorists that Iran and uh, and Hamas have for the Biden administration for the United States of America right now, that they can take hostages with impunity. And in fact, use that for us to put pressure on the Israelis just to hold, to hold up their campaign and to to, to mitigate how, how they prosecute their war effort. And uh, so they, they, they've played us like a fiddle with these American hostages, and yet they, they didn't even release any of them. And so this is not a victory. We shouldn't be taking a victory lap today. We should be happy that the hostages are home, but uh, we, we need to understand that this is, you know, this is, not, this is not a great situation. I was reading from New York Times Dispatch this morning. Biden was asked directly, Robert, about um, about the American hostages. And it was all very vague and ambiguous. And I guess my thought here is from day one, I mean, Americans were killed 
in the uh, barbaric October 7th. Americans are taken hostages. Biden hardly ever talks about Americans being taken hostages. Why wouldn't he want to have a much more aggressive, much more militant, you know, much more bigger warning to Hamas and Iran, for that matter, uh, the ultimate puppeteer and paymaster about the Americans who have been killed and who have been taken hostage? Why wouldn't he want to make a bigger deal about that? Well, Larry, you worked for the great Ronald Reagan. I was an intern for him. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you remember the days that when terrorists killed Americans uh, on the Achilles Laura or, or took mm. American hostages, Ronald Reagan said you could run, but you can't hide. Mm. And we, we bombed Libya and we, we took deterrent action. President Trump did the same thing with the, the al-Baghdadi raid. I mean, part of that raid was to bring to justice a man who killed four Americans, Kasich and Sotloff and Mueller and Foley, and, and brutally beheaded it the three males and killed the female. And so there was a consequence to these terrorists for taking American hostages and for engaging in terrorism and killing Americans. Where Where is that sort of behavior now? I mean, you'd think we'd be right there with the Israelis, you know, using our Marines, our special forces to root out Hamas for killing Americans and taking Americans hostage. And at a minimum, the, the, the Hamas, when they realized they had Americans, should have released them and sent them to the border immediately and said, please don't take it. You know, we, we didn't mean to do this and we're sorry. Instead, they're keeping the Americans for the last uh, because they know they can probably get further concessions from, from the Biden administration. They saw the Biden administration pay the Iranians billions of dollars. Maybe they're hoping to get billions of dollars in, in addition to mm-hmm. making the Israelis stop their campaign. So it's just a very different attitude of, of the Obama administration and not the Biden administration of this idea that if they stretch out their hand to terrorists and to dictators, that they'll somehow the, the bad guys will somehow unclench their fists. But we've seen an unmitigated series of catastrophes from Afghanistan, the invasion of Ukraine, the, the invasion of Israel by Hamas with Iranian backing. And he- heaven forbid that the Chinese t- learn the lesson from this and, and go after Taiwan. So, mm. you know, appeasement doesn't work. Peace or strength does. And we need to get back to that posture. And that's what will keep Americans safe and keep Americans from being taken hostage. If people think twice when they see a blue passport and think, I better not take that person hostage because I could end up dead. Instead, there's every incentive right now to take American, Americans hostage, and, and we've got to change that immediately. We're talking with Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor in the Trump administration, uh, himself a former hostage negotiator for the State Department. He's now chairman of American Global Strategies. Robert, i got to take a quick commercial break. I want to come back and talk more about the Iran angle on this whole story. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We will be right back. Please stick around. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor in the Trump administration and a former hostage negotiator, now chairman of American Global Strategies. Uh, Robert, thank you. Um, I want to talk some more. Uh, the Iran angle is sort of off the front pages right this second because of the uh, hostage exchange and so forth. But the reality is the Bidens picking up where the Obamas left off have appeased Iran from day one. They've got an Iranian cutout who was a chief negotiator, this Robert Malley person. He's got somebody in the Defense Department. Malley lost his security clearance. They won't tell us why. 
He's got a protege in the Defense Department, chief of staff to an assistant secretary. Um, meanwhile, Iran's proxies continue to whack away at American military assets in the region. I don't know what the number is, it was up to 70, I don't know where it is now. And all we've done, all the United States has done is little pinprick responses. So, how do you read this, and when will the Bidens buck up? Yeah, there's, there's this unfortunate belief that somehow Iran is a force for good in the Middle East in the, the Biden administration. And you're right, it carries over from the Obama administration. They had Rob Malley, and was that, Rob Malley losing his security clearance, and uh, he, he landed a cushy job at Princeton, so they're taking care of him. Uh, he still hasn't been fired. He's only suspended. But it's, that, that's going to be a major scandal when we you know, find out how close Malley and his cohorts were with the Iranians. I mean, we have a woman who's chief of staff of the, uh, the Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflicts uh, Department at uh, DOD, and she she would write the Iranians and request approval to appear in front of Congress, uh, making sure the Iranian foreign ministry let her, let her testify in the same panel as, quote, Jews. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we've got, we've got a real problem here. Uh, they, they believe that somehow Iran is, uh, is this great civilized country that if we can only, you know, give them enough money, give them enough respect, uh, appease them enough, that they'll become our friends. And what, I, what I've said all along is, like, you know, the Iranians just aren't that into us. I mean, they, they <laughs> chant death to America. That's, that's never going to change. They have a, a universalist ideology, just like we have a universal, universal ideology of freedom and liberty and the Brotherhood of Man. They have an ideology that believes in the return of the 12th Mahdi. They believe that everyone will have to become a Shia Islamic uh, follower. And they believe that's a worldwide uh, thing. So the, the, the ideologies of the two countries, which are both universal, they both believe that one is going to win out over the other. And I, I hope that freedom and liberty and, and humanity win. But uh, the, the Iranians have a different view, and you're not going to convert them to becoming friends of America. And yet, the Biden administration, preceded by the Obama administration, believed that they could somehow uh, convince Iran to, to be on our side. And it's, it's never going to happen. And it doesn't matter how much they pay them. And, and the, the, the sad part is the Iranians view that as a sign of weakness. They don't view it as a sign of strength. And they, they kill dissidents and they, they kill women and they, they, they take gay and lesbian Iranians and throw them off buildings and uh, they, they hang their opponents and, and slaughter protesters, and they take Americans hostage. When will we bloody Iranians for these attacks on U.S. military assets? When, I mean, when will we enforce the sanctions? When will we stop an oil ship from going to China or sink a ship or impound a ship or hit uh, in Iran a training center for terrorists or even a command and control. I mean, what are we waiting for? Well, I, I don't know how many Americans are going to have to die before that happens, but uh, you're, you're exactly right on the sanctions, Larry. You know, the, the left likes to say, well, sanctions against Iran don't work. Well, they sure as heck worked in the Trump administration because we reduced Iran's foreign currency reserves to $4 billion when we left office, Larry. You know that well because you were running that program. But now that Iran has $70 billion in, in foreign currency reserves, they've become wealthy and a rich country because we've turned a blind eye to the, the sanctions. We're not enforcing them. So there are no sanctions against Iran, and that's why they're not effective, because they're not being enforced. As with our tro- to our troops, these pinprick attacks 
they cleanse the you know cruise missile attack on on the aspirin factory in Sudan looked like a Normandy invasion. Hmm. I mean, there, there's nothing. There's no deterrence. The Iranians are laughing at us. The Khatib Hezbollah, their proxy, is laughing at us. You know, we hit an abandoned warehouse somewhere and, and claim that it's restoring deterrence. The Iranians attack, and, and their their proxies, Khatib Hezbollah and, and others, have attacked our troops in Iran and Syria 80 times or more. We, hmm. we don't know how many more. It's probably more than 80. Hmm. We, we, we've done a couple of these, these slap on the wrist, you know, responses that do nothing to, to improve the life of our troops or, or protect them or keep them safe. And I, I think it's, we're going to have a real tragedy. At some point, you know, we're going to lose a bunch of Americans, and people are going to wonder, how did this happen? Just like they wondered, how, how did the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan happen in such a chaotic fashion? And it's, it's because when you, you abandon the protection of your troops and forces and you abandon deterrence, uh, it's provocative to our adversaries. Now, America's not a weak country. We're a very strong country. We, we're not more fundamentally weak than we were you know, three years ago. But but when we appear weak, uh, that's provocative to our adversaries. So it's it's time to start showing the world. And this is a bipartisan thing. This is something I hope the Biden administration does. It's not a political issue. I hope they they put us back on a peace of strength posture and protect American citizens and American soldiers and sailors, airmen, and Marines. Last point um, question for you: Can you talk about um, the sort of shadowy presence of Qatar? negotiating hostages, providing aid to terrorist groups. Now, you know, part of Qatar is is a, a capitalist story, Doha. Part of Qatar is a very bad terrorist story. I, I take it they were front and center in these hostage negotiations. It's sort of a shadowy, mysterious place. Can you bring it to life just a wee bit for us? Yeah, so so look, I, I worked very closely with with Cutter when I was a hostage envoy because they had access and uh, they were able to help America with uh, with recovering hostages, and I think that's what they're doing here. Uh, you know, Cutter's a major non-NATO ally. They were declared that by the Biden administration, but in the Trump administration, we had very strong military ties with them. We've got a large air base in Cutter now, but but you have to understand, Cutter's in a, a difficult place. They're in a very rough neighborhood. They're about 20 miles away from Iran. The Iranians put tremendous pressure on Qatar. Hmm. And, and Qatar stands strong with America when we're strong, when, when they believe that we'll defend them. But there are only 300,000 uh, Qatar, Qatari citizens. Uh, they're a very small country compared to Iran. So that they've tried to carve out a role of uh, somewhat of a Switzerland in the Middle East and, hmm. and be available for negotiations. And, and, and look, in my experience, they were always very helpful. I'm, I'm, I assume they're being helpful in these negotiations. But... Qatar is only as strong as America is strong in turning Iran because, look, without America, without our air base there, the Iranians can swallow up Qatar in a day. All right. And so I think, I think they're doing their best in their bad situation. Ambassador Robert O'Brien, great friend, so knowledgeable. Chairman now of American Global Strategies, former National Security Advisor Robert, thank you ever so much. We appreciate it. Have a great, great weekend. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, buddy. Folks, we'll take a break and talk economics with John Carney of Breitbart on the other side of the break. I'm Kudlow. Straight ahead. Stay with us, please.
It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And we are going to spend the next half hour catching up on the economy with John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. Uh, first of all, John, happy Thanksgiving. And we're both Thanks, back from Larry. vacation. Yes, indeed. We're both, we've both arrived uh, just in time for Thanksgiving. All right, just in time for Thanksgiving. So, John, let's um, – actually, I had one thing that I wanted to go through. Uh, the Biden sent out this wonderful MAGA alert. Did you see this? The MAGA alert on the economy where they said – I'm looking for it in my notes here – that the inflation rate has really come down, and if you meet any crazy MAGA people for Thanksgiving <laughs> – you should tell them that the inflation rate has come way down. The trouble is, John, um, let's see, the cost of a classic Thanksgiving dinner is up 30% uh, over 2020. Let's see, turkey up 41%, pumpkin pie up 31%, a gallon of milk up 21%, uh, veggie tray, one pound veggie tray up 23%, uh, rolls up 44%. Now, in fairness, cranberries are down 22%. And I think eggs are down, although it's not on this list. I'm not sure where I got this. Oh, yeah, this is from the American Farm Bureau Federation. Right, so your point... This list every year, and they were very <laughs> explicit this year to say, yes, prices have come down from the crazy levels we saw last year on a lot of items but nowhere near enough to bring them down to where they were pre-Biden administration. We're still up a you know tremendous amount. So nobody, you know, if you're paying 2% less for your turkey than you did last year, nobody's going to feel that feel very good about that because you're paying 30% than you did 3 years ago, right? <laughs> this is not the normal kind of inflation that we're used to seeing, and so people are still experiencing sticker shock when they try to, you know, fill the table for Thanksgiving. And um, overall, the CPI is up uh, 17% from February of 2021, the first month of Biden in office. Uh, groceries up 20%. Gasoline up, I don't know, 35%. Gasoline was about $2 a gallon at the end of 2020. So it's come right. down from the peak of five, but it's still running about, I think, nationwide, John, about three and a half bucks, isn't it? Yeah. And look, this is one of the things that the Biden administration keeps trying to do is they focus on a month of good data. They say, oh, look, no, things, you know, inflation came down a lot. Inflation has slowed down. Go home and tell your family inflation slowed down. I really hope nobody actually took that advice, because <laughs> if you sit down at your mother or your aunt or uncle or your cousin's table and tell them that they're just imagining how much they spent to feed you, that everything's really cheaper, don't they know? I think that's going to be a little bit of a, of a contentious Thanksgiving meal. Um, the truth is that things are more expensive. Um, that when you ha and This is one of the big problems with inflation. When you get a bout of inflation that runs up to 9%, uh, you know, 10%, 20% for food, you 
it takes a long time to recover from that because the prices don't drop down. What ends up happening is even if you get normal inflation for several years, prices won't feel normal for even longer than that because you had these giant jumps that we had when Biden first got into office. Well, that's right. They shouldn't have let the cat out of the bag in the first place. Now they're paying for that. Your point, uh, one of your uh, recent uh, Breitbart Business Digest, you're saying Americans are still worried about inflation. In fact, in the Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey, inflation expectations actually gone up, not down. A lot. They've gone up by a lot, which is uh, very concerning because, remember, people behave in ways if they expect inflation that actually can help contribute to inflation. One thing they do is they engage in preemptive buying. Because if you're worried the price of something is going to be 4.5% higher a year from now, you better buy it now. So what happens, that increases the demand and actually encourages the inflation. And then the same thing happens with wages. When you expect all the prices to go up by 5% rather than 2%, you hit your boss up for a uh, you know, bigger wage, which then gives you more spending power, which then allow, you know, encourages the inflation. So it should be very concerning. I haven't seen enough stories about this um, apart from at Breitbart Business Digest where people are saying something is going on. People were expecting just 3.2% inflation as recently as this summer. Why has this changed so dramatically uh, over the last few months? Why has it changed? I mean, <laughs> I thought inflation was dead. I thought the Biden slayed inflation. Remember, John, Joe Biden cut the federal budget deficit by $1.7 trillion. Oops. <laughs> right. Oops. Well, I think people are concerned about a few things. One, they can see how high home prices are and that raising interest rates didn't lower home prices. So that's probably playing a role here. I also think that people are worried the Fed has now stopped raising rates. And now I'm not saying that when the University of Michigan calls people, they say, yeah, they should have, you know, people in their mind are thinking they should have raised another quarter of a point. But the Fed is backed off. They said, okay, we're done raising rates. They have another meeting this year. Nobody thinks they're going to raise in December. Um, they're probably not going to raise. And now all the talk is, you know, will they cut in May or June or July? But a cut is coming. So I think the public senses, wait, we haven't defeated inflation. We haven't gotten to where inflation needs to be, but we're already talking about cutting interest rates, and that could cause you know pro-inflation. Plus, I think everybody knows the Biden administration is going to attempt to propose some sort of big spending plans mm -hmm. in order to try to buy off votes as we go into this election year. Oh, you know, they're in a panic. Biden is unpopular. They're going to try to come up with every way they can to try to convince people to vote for Biden uh, with checks right with more money to them that's a good point john actually there hasn't been anything written about that but you're right that's a very good point they will try to buy as many votes as they can with a bloated budget once again which could put more pressure on inflation but back to your other point the big story in the wall street journal this morning fed wants more evidence uh before they change their rate stance so it's sort of like the bond market's getting ahead of itself again <laughs> That's right. This I feel like we have had this very discussion a number of times. Yeah. The Fed has tried to send the message, look, we're not going, unless we get a lot more evidence 
that shows that inflation is steadily going down to 2%. So that means not one month, not two months, probably not even three months. I think they want to see you know, a steady path for six months. If they see that, then fine. They might say, okay, maybe we can back off a little bit. Wall Street just thinks, no, that's it. Like, we're already there. We're going to start cutting. Uh, so Wall Street is, in a sense, ahead of the Fed when it comes to rate cuts. Wall Street has definitely moved on beyond rate hikes. And there is a danger. I'm not saying it's a, it's a big danger. I think the Fed is very hesitant to raise rates further. But I think there's a danger if we get a couple hot prints in inflation next year, like once we get past all these holidays, they always create a little chaos in the CPI data. Once we get past all this, if we get in March, April, May, some hot CPI data coming in, I think the Fed may feel pressure to raise rates, and that's going to send panic through the market because nobody has that built in to their prices. Right. You know, um Another reason why Bidenomics is so unpopular besides prices is borrowing rates, right? So you've got mortgage rates, they're maybe off the highs, but they're still close to 8%. Credit card rates, John, auto loan rates, all that stuff has gone up a lot in the last two years. Absolutely. I had a friend who told me actually just over this Thanksgiving weekend that he went to go buy a car and he knew that mortgage rates were up, but he didn't realize how much the auto loan rates were going to be. And what he was present, you know, he had bought his last car back in 2019. So what he was presented in terms of financing uh, was shocking to him. He would said, OK, I can't buy a car right now because the, and I think that really does make people feel pretty bad because, you know, all the big stuff, you know, houses, uh, cars, even major appliances, uh, you know, get financed. And when the financing starts to cost a lot more, you have to buy fewer of them. I mean, this is actually how monetary policy works. Mm-hmm. It's trying to make it more expensive for people to buy these things, trying to get them to maybe decide not to. But that de- that makes people feel bad about the economy because something they wanted something they feel they could have afforded just a couple of years ago is now out of reach. So of course, uh, and whether that's because of high prices or because of interest rates, of course they're gonna feel bad about the economy. So you've got mortgage rates running upwards of eight. You've got car loans, I think, running around nine. Uh, what about credit card rates? Credit card rates are like 25, 30%? Yeah, credit card rates are through the roof. Um, now is not a very good time to run a balance on a credit card. Everybody should do everything they can to avoid doing that. Um, and we, you know, if the rates stay that high, right now we have a cushion because unemployment's very low. If unemployment starts to tick up, you're going to end up in a messy situation where people with high credit card bills will be, you know, lose their jobs, be unable to afford to keep those credit card bills going, and then we'll we'll see some rising delinquencies. We actually haven't seen that many so far. There is a rise if you look at the total number, but um, there's a lot. There's also a lot more credit card debt out there. But we really, as long as the unemployment stays very low, delinquencies on credit card rates will stay pretty low. But if the uh, labor market starts to crack, then look out, you're going to see a lot more people defaulting on credit card bills. So you have to wonder, um... Uh, in the Business Digest, you you covered the big drop in durable goods orders. 
which just came out for October, minus 5.4%, excluding defense, was even worse, minus 6.7%. Uh, Non-defense capital goods orders, ex-aircraft, uh, fell slightly for the each of the last two months. And John, the other one is going back to the industrial production report. Uh, business equipment spending continues to decline. And I guess, what did I read? Um, housing starts, was that right? Down eight straight months or nine straight months. So what's the read on the economy? Yeah, so, the, so the, that's very bad news, particularly this durable goods, ex-aircraft and ex-defense. Uh, that is, you know, a proxy for business investment in the economy, and it's falling. Uh, it's not clear how prolonged that will be, but it does seem like businesses, you know, entered October weary about what was going to happen over the, you know, businesses aren't just thinking over the next month, they're thinking over the next year. So they are, even though officially, you know, the recession for 2024 has largely come out of expectations. When you see these business investment numbers, uh, you do have to start to worry, why are they pulling back? What are they, what do they see happening? And I think what they're, I think what they're worried about is, that the high demand may, uh, the high interest rates may start to sap demand, right. and that is that's the softness we're seeing uh, going into next year. And I mean, that's one reason I'm very worried about the Biden administration announcing some sort of giant spending plan. Hmm. Because if the economy is weakening early next year, uh, they're going to want to do something. Right. They are not going to want to go into November with a soft economy. Frankly, you don't want to go into May with a soft economy because people have memories. They were, you know, you could fix yeah. things by November and it wouldn't help. So look for mid-year Biden administration to announce a crazy deficit spending plan oh, that will try, that. you know, that will send money out in I exchange. Can't wait, John. Let me take a break. We'll come right back. Uh, we're talking to John Carney of Breitbart. He's the author, or co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, all things economy. I want to talk about the, um, by the way, it was existing home sales are down eight straight months, 19 out of the last 21 months. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with Carney. Stick around, folks. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking all things economy with John Carney, Breitbart News Editor of Economics and Finance and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. John, when we left it off, um, uh, existing home sales down eight straight months, down 19 in the last 21 months. The other data point was interesting. Um, the leading, uh, The index of leading indicators, I think down 19 straight months which is surely a recession indicator, even though people have stopped talking about recession. And I would add that the yield curve is uh, still very much inverted, another traditional recession indicator. Uh, and last, uh, the um, Atlanta Fed GDP tracker is 2.1% for the fourth quarter. It was four, the actual was 4.9 in Q3. So what about these, um, forward indicators. I mean, 
No one's talking recession anymore. Is recession off the table? I don't think it is. Uh, I think people see how strong we were last year and think that that's going to carry through. I think that's actually a mistake. I think that there is a danger of a recession uh, that uh, that could happen next year. The, like you said, the index of leading indicators has been, you know, got worse again. It, it had started to show some improvement, but it just keeps getting worse and worse. That thing is definitely back in recession uh, territory. I would say, and you know, they, they combine all of these things. Maybe we get through it. Maybe we don't have a recession, but it's very rare that that would happen. Um, things like the existing home sales are down in large part because if you sell your home now, you're basically trading into a higher mortgage. If mm. so, you you know you you have your four percent mortgage. You go try to buy your new smaller home, maybe a retirement home. Your kids graduated from college or out of the house. You, you buy your home, and now you're paying more even for a smaller home. That's actually that causes a lot of uh, a low level of sales, and then of course would be buyers are intimidated by the rates and they don't want to buy. So there's very low levels of sales. That actually can also cause some economic friction. Because people who are more or less trapped in their lower rate mortgage can't move to, say, take a better job. So you actually end up with some economic inefficiency being caused by the fact that everybody's more or less stuck in place by the fact that they have, you know, they all financed into mortgages at three or four percent. And now the best thing they can get is seven, you know, to eight percent. So that's going to be a problem going forward next year. I I think we're not we're not going to be in a recession in the fourth quarter of this year. I don't see one developing in the first quarter, but I think the middle of next year is where things get a little bit risky, um, and the economy may finally start to run out of steam. It'll be particularly risky if inflation stays high, and the Fed has to make it clear that they're going to have to return to raising rates. Which right now, again, that is so far out of people like that will come that will blindside people if it happens and i think right now i'm not saying it's definitely going to happen but the market is just pretending it's impossible for inflation to come back up and yet you know we have the the university of michigan consumer numbers saying no inflation is going to come back Mm. i would not I, i i think the bond traders uh after being stung last year by by foreseeing a recession that didn't happen this year are risking being stung by assuming that no recession can happen all right well we wait for supply side policies lower taxes (laughs) deregulation and a sound dollar we'll wait a little while longer john carney 2025 yes 2025 john carney breitbart thank you ever so much folks can take a quick break other side of the break, we're going to talk some politics with Roger Stone. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Cudlow Show. All right. We welcome back to the show the great Roger Stone, political consultant and strategist extraordinaire. Host of WABC Radio's The Roger Stone Show, which is Sundays, 4 to 6 p.m. on most of these same stations. And his website is www.stonecoldtruth.com. Roger, welcome back. Happy Thanksgiving. 
Larry, great to be with you. I hope uh, you and Judy had a blessed and restful Thanksgiving. Oh, thank you, and the same to you and and uh, Nydia. Um, Roger, let's talk some politics here. Bob Vanderplatz endorsing uh, Ron DeSantis in Iowa, which is coming a week or two after Governor Kim Reynolds endorsed um, Ron DeSantis uh, in Iowa. Does this change anything in Iowa, in your judgment? Uh, there's there's no evidence that it does. I mean, Larry, as someone who's been involved in 13 national Republican presidential campaigns, who I, I've been in politics for 45 years, I've worked on over 700 campaigns, I still try to be dispassionate, meaning I still try to make my decisions and form my opinions based on empirical data, polling, and not any one specific poll, but many polls with solid methodology, uh, correct sample size, dispassionately neutrally worded questions in the correct order, uh, and then look at the direction of all of them at one time. Real clear politics saves you a huge amount of time. You don't have to go around pulling them together yourself, but there is just no evidence empirically that either one of these endorsements move large numbers of voters. By the way, that's traditionally true with one exception. The only endorsement I have ever actually seen move large numbers of voters, ironically, is the endorsement of Donald Trump himself. Uh, and uh, looking at the most recent survey research out of Iowa, a poll that I really respect, the big data poll, which has a particularly large sample and therefore is particularly accurate, not only is Trump leading the field in Iowa with about 51.3% to 16.8 for uh, Governor DeSantis, 13.8 for Nikki Haley. But more importantly, seven out of 10 of the Trump voters now say there is no circumstance whatsoever under which they will change their mind. That's up mm. from uh, 5.5% just a month ago. Mm. That's interesting. That last little nugget is very interesting. Now, a lot was made of Vanderplatz, who, I guess, he endorsed Cruz in 2016. Cruz won Iowa in a close one with Trump. Trump went on, of course, to slaughter uh, Cruz in New Hampshire and then take the nomination. And then going back to Mike Huckabee before then, I don't even remember which year it was. Um, but Trump has a lot of... Uh, cultural leaders, doesn't he? He has a lot of social conservative leaders. And how, how important, you know, Vanderplatz, he's been giving almost mythic status, myth, mythical status uh, by, you know, a lot of broadcasters and hosts that don't want Trump. But I mean, how seriously significant is it? Uh, I don't think it's that significant. I mean, first of all, there's the fact that he, by his own admission, admits that he was paid $95,000 essentially for his endorsement. Heck, I remember when he tried to shake Jack Kemp down before the 1988 caucuses. Uh, so how sincere this is, I don't really know. The, the Trump campaign recently unveiled the support of 150 statewide uh, right. evangelical leaders. Right. Uh, I, I really, I, you know, his track record is decent. You will remember, however, that Ted Cruz won only after a vile, dirty trick in which uh, there was a statewide blast to every voter saying that Ben Carson had withdrawn. 
when Ben Carson had not withdrawn from the caucus. Hmm. Uh, Whoever did that was never tracked down. uh, But I think it allowed Cruz at the last minute to pick up some Carson votes and slip by Trump. Uh, It's been a long time since the party's nominated anyone who won the Iowa caucuses. Uh, Santorum, Huckabee, uh, Cruz, and so on. Uh, On the other hand, Ron DeSantis, having uh, pulled all of his resources out of New Hampshire, uh, South Carolina, uh, and Nevada, this is do or die for him. He has to win. Win is defined as coming in first, beating Donald Trump, getting more votes than Trump. I think about 125,000 people will vote. That's up from last time. I know the Trump people believe confidently that they have identified 85,000 solid Trump voters. And now what is all important are the mechanics of making sure that those people show up on a cold night uh, for the caucuses. Kim Reynolds, um, good governor. I I don't think her endorsement has had any impact at all. Uh, no, No evidence that it has. What's the conundrum, Larry, that uh, Governor DeSantis faces is December 12th is the deadline for him removing his name from the Florida primary ballot. The Florida primary is not until March, but he has to make a decision. Now, the Iowa caucuses are January 15th. Hmm. Right now, most of the polling shows him leading, uh, trailing President Trump in his home state by as much as 40 points. So he's got a very, very hard decision to make. Uh, He can't remove his name from the Florida ballot after January 15th, probably January 12th, probably December 12th, I misspoke. Uh, And uh, I don't think he wants to face taking a beating in his home state. Uh, There's no reason to believe that winning Iowa, which I don't think is in the cards anyway, is going to reverse a 40-point deficit in the Sunshine State. Mm. Roger, Joe Manchin make any difference one way or another? Uh, you know, I know Joe, you probably know Joe, sort of moderate Democrat, uh, in and out. It's like a, it's like a, a, an old AM radio. It kind of comes in, then it comes out, then it comes in, comes out. Say make any difference if he ran for president. Well, I mean, you've got two potential independents here that could make some difference. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the overwhelming polling shows that if, and this is a gigantic if, if he can get on the ballot, uh, which is extraordinarily different. Remember, the ballot access rules uh, in every and laws in every state are written by Republicans and Democrats working together to try to avoid any serious competition, both in primary contests, uh, also in general elections. So the Mm -hmm. rules are arcane, expensive, labor-intensive, complicated, subject to legal challenge. Uh, The no-labels group that Manchin seems to be flirting with has a actually has a long head start on the technical end of this. I helped Governor Gary Johnson get on the ballot in 2012, when I couldn't stomach the nomination of Mitt Romney, uh, he got on the ballot in 48 states, but it cost six million bucks mm. and a year of planning. Mm. And he had the Libertarian Party base. So he was on the ballot automatically in about 30 states and only had to petition his way on in 20. 
Uh, I don't know whether Manchin is real. I think he's kind of hurt his cred very badly by a number of his later votes in the Senate where he seemed to move back into the Biden quadrant. In the end, I don't think he will do it. Uh, As you know, Larry, the tradition in American politics is that independent candidates kind of run stronger early on in the polling, but then they tend to fade as voters begin to realize that not only are they unlikely to win, but that voting for them, like, for example, voting for Robert Kennedy, might inadvertently get you Joe Biden, which is the result you really don't want. So whether it is Perot in 92 uh, or 96, or whether it is uh, George Wallace uh, in 1968 who got on the ballot in most states, those candidacies tend to really fade as Election Day gets closer. I remember John Anderson, Congressman John Anderson in 1980. Uh, everybody was talking about him, but you know Reagan still got over 51% of the vote. I think Anderson wound up 7% or 8%, something like that. And That's exactly say, right. Good example yeah. I had forgotten. But he yeah, was I mean, polling, at a, polling around 16 and yeah. ended up with 7. Although Ross, Ross Perot, I think, heard Papa Bush, didn't he, in 92? You know, if you actually go into it and examine it, uh, what you'll find is that half of those voters would not have voted for anyone else. Uh, and then the rest of them split about evenly. So it's you can't. Def- I know that's the lore. Mm. But you can't definitively said that. I think in the end, he may have taken slightly disproportionately more from Bush, the senior, but not enough to change the race. You know, just on another subject, though, uh, talking about these polls, the numbers of black Americans, uh, actually one poll, 22%, but a whole bunch of polls show Donald Trump picking up an uh, extraordinary amount of black Americans, which in some sense were the heart and soul of Joe Biden's campaign in, 20, uh, in 2020. Um, what do you make of that? And can that last? I mean, the, the one that I recall was 22%. That might have been New York Times, Siena. I don't remember, Roger. Yes. But, but, but let's suppose, you know, Trump were able to pick up 15 or 16 or 17 percent. That in itself would be something of a revolution, would do great damage to Biden and great help to Trump. Uh, yeah, it would be seismic. And you're right. We see it everywhere in all of these polls. So whether it is The New York Times Siena College poll, the methodology of which I respect, or whether it is the Bloomberg Morning Consult poll, the methodology, again, which uh, I, I think is valid. Uh, you've seen Trump making solid gains, both among Hispanics and African-Americans separately. Uh, and I think one of the things that would be incumbent on the Trump campaign to do is to build on that. Mm. Uh, look, I, you know, uh, go back to the concept of black capitalism. Mm. Uh, they don't want to be employees. They want to be employers. They want that black Americans want their piece of the American pie uh, and prosperity and opportunity, uh, as well as social justice. Uh, I think those things uh, are very appealing. Trump means jobs. Trump means economic growth and opportunity. Uh, And that's not just for just not just for people like you and I, Larry. That is for everyone. Ben Carson came out with a very strong endorsement of Trump, former cabinet member. Um, I don't know how deep his support is out there, but um, obviously a leading black American 
uh, a great scientist, a great doctor, a man of faith. I mean, there's one right there. And the other thing, Roger, that interested me, uh, you may have seen the article by John Judas and Roy Texera, if that's how to pronounce his name, you know, two left of center Democrats writing about how working class folks for Trump, but they are importantly noted working class white and non-white working class voters swinging for Trump. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly uh, valid. I mean, look, Trump, when you're polling Trump, you have to kind of throw everything you knew out before out the window. He's a natural phenomena. He, he's unique. Uh, but there's a reason why he won and Romney and John McCain did not. You can find that reason in Milwaukee uh, and in Detroit uh, and in Philadelphia and its suburbs, mm. uh, uh, you know, and in Phoenix. Uh, it is a, it is that blue collar working class, more likely to be Catholic than not, uh, mm. and uh, and a sl- and a slight uptick among African Americans. I don't think that his last campaign capitalized on that. Right. as much as they could have. I think mm. they will this time. I think they'll do a lot of things differently this time. But uh, what, what's amazing is that Trump's national numbers in the polling pitting him against Joe Biden uh, continue despite the enormous onslaught of vicious negative media against him surrounding these various, what I think are fabricated prosecutions in various jurisdictions as well as federally, it's counterintuitive, but they have turbocharged his campaign. Mm-hmm. They actually seek to make him, they actually have made him stronger, which is sends his critics, you know, into an apoplectic state of hysteria. Mm-hmm. That's why you suddenly have all of these, Trump is like Hitler, Trump is an authoritarian, Trump used the, the judicial system to go after his political enemies. Really? Trump will have the law enforcement attack those who are protesting. Really? This is all out of Alinsky's rule book. Everything they say Trump is going to do is precisely what they are doing today. Yeah, well, I think also, Roger, this time around is a very strong issues campaign besides, I mean, the um, two-tier justice system, which has helped Trump, I know, but I think he's running on the issues, um, economy, inflation, drill, baby drill, and also the immigration issue, the border issue, Roger. It is huge. It will be even bigger this year than it was in 2016. And it was plenty big in 2016 when Trump rang the bell warning about that. Uh, no issue more important than economic growth. It's still the economy, stupid. Uh, no one really thinks Bidenomics is working. You see, the, you see overwhelmingly in the national data, uh, o- across the board, about 43 to 45% still name the economy as the number one issue. Yeah. Trump does these really excellent Agenda 47 videos yeah. where he goes into issues in great depth. Yeah. Because they, they don't post them on X, formerly known as Twitter, they don't get the currency that they really deserve. And therefore, those who say Trump needs to talk more about issues, Trump is talking about issues. Yeah just have to look for it a little bit you got it all right folks the great roger stone by the way wabc radio's roger stone show sundays 4 to 6 p.m most of these very same stations nobody knows politics better than my pal roger stone thank you roger we appreciate it very very much folks take quick break other side of the break 
We're going to talk about some of these legal issues and uh, (laughs) two-tier justice system with Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We welcome in Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst, New York Times bestseller, and he's got a new book out called The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Before we're done with him, he's going to give us a patriotic document. Anyway, Greg Jarrett, um, Speaker Mike Johnson has said that regarding Biden impeachment, all the dots are not yet connected. And I wanted to get your take on that state of play. The hearings will probably resume um, for the Oversight Committee. Is Mike Johnson right? No, he's wrong. He's not read in. He hasn't seen the evidence. He's so busy uh, getting elected speaker and trying to avoid a government shutdown that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, You know, is, is there enough evidence already to impeach Biden? Yes. The Burisma scheme alone, in which Joe Biden admits he used his influence to get a prosecutor fired uh, while his son was pocketing millions of dollars from the company that benefited from that, is evidence of a corrupt influence peddling scheme. It's bribery, which, as you know, is an impeachable offense under the Constitution. Should Republicans impeach that's a different question. You know, it's a political weapon that can easily backfire, especially, Larry, when it's brought in the middle of a presidential campaign by an opposing party. The public will invariably see that as election interference, an effort to deprive them of the decision mm. uh, as to who should be the next president. That's a good point. At the end of the day, right, all these cases are going to be settled by the November election. So that that's a very interesting and important point. Um, probably better, I'm going to ask you, but seems to me it might be better for uh, Jamie Comer, the smart guy, to keep the drumbeat going. In other words, keep the impeachment yeah. inquiry going, right? As many witnesses as he can get, subpoenas, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Republicans would be far better off to have the committee continue to gather the incriminating evidence and simply present it to the American voters without impeachment. And look, after all, uh, they don't have the votes for impeachment in the House. It's a slim majority. There are moderates who won't do it. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Um, How about this one? the documents hearings, the documents uh, special counsels. Uh, where is the Biden guy? Where is the guy investigating Joe Biden and the documents in the Corvette and as vice president? He took stuff out that he shouldn't have taken from the National Archives. Whatever happened to that guy? Is he still around, Greg Jarrett? Yeah, Robert Hur, and there were some reports that he has decided to write a very serious report criticizing Joe Biden, but he's not going to bring any criminal charges against him. Uh, It was always a charade, and it will be proven to be so. 15 seconds. Besides George Washington, favorite document in the Constitution? Ronald Reagan, tear down this wall. 
Oh, what a beauty from Greg Jarrett, Fox News. Constitution of the United States and other patriotic documents. Folks, go out and buy it one click on Amazon. Thank you, Greg Jarrett. We appreciate it. I'm Kudlow. Other side of the break, stock market work. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And during the week, you can reach us, watch us, Fox Business Network, FBN. Name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. It replays at 7. You want to see us at 4? You can't. Dial up your favorite uh, nine-year-old, and she'll teach you how to DVR the show. And here, you can live stream us on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. Plays all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, including the Milky Way. So, we're going to do some stock market work. Roaring stock market. Roaring. And it continues to rise. The Dow is up 443 points in the holiday shortened week. The NASDAQ 125, the S&P 500 up 45 points. The S&P is 4559, 4559, 0.34. And the Dow is 35,390. And Chicago's leading restaurateur. And we have Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial and Notre Dame's biggest booster. Gentlemen, welcome back. Happy Thanksgiving to both of you. Appreciate you doing this. So I get it's what's gonna happen here? Kilberg's gonna probably take a bow. Is that what's going to happen here, Jim Urio? Kilbert's going to take a bullish I'm take bow. A, I'm going to take a deeper bow than Kilbert, because although I was oh. not as good on the stock market <laughs> part, but How I had gold in Bitcoin. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you why, if you let me finish. Well, going right <laughs> after. We were going 100 last time we were on, for cripes. Yeah, no, and I said gold and Bitcoin. What's happened to those two things? They've outperformed the stock market. Yes, I was wrong in the stock market, and you were right. Please continue, Jeff. I couldn't hear you. Can you say it again? Yeah, I said that gold and Bitcoin, which were two of my three picks, have uh, pretty much exploded. So how's Bitcoin, that? Bitcoin, uh, yeah, thirty-seven thousand seven forty-six. Bitcoin year to date is one hundred twenty-eight point two percent. All right, how about those apples? And, and no. my thesis on that, you know, like every time I, I go on a show, like, what's the thesis? And they expect some complicated thing. No, it's not very complicated at all. When BlackRock gets into something, I kind of want to ride their coattails. It's broader adoption. Of Bitcoin. I barely even know what Bitcoin is, as I've said a million times. But if the big boys are getting up behind it, then I kind of want to be on that team. All right. Dow's up 6.8% year to date. And the S&P 500 is up 18.7% year to date. And the NASDAQ is 36.2% year to date. All right, Jeff Kilberg, you're on. Well, I'm not going to take a victory lap, uh, Larry, but I do appreciate the little hat tip. But for those uh, listeners out there, Jimmy Yuri and I have been elbowing each other for decades now. We are very good friends, but we do like ripping on each other. But I was right, so I will appreciate that you guys are giving me a little hat tip on that. But let's look at the VIX. The VIX is at 12 and a half, Larry. It's one of the biggest drops we've seen in the VIX, and this is all due to the fact that after a really rough 
August, September, October, the month of November, we're on a four-week run here, and we're seeing the markets revert back to where they were because a lot of the money that we talked about was sitting on the sidelines. And we have seen earnings better than expected. So there's a lot of different components in here which are overcoming all the headwinds which we've seen. But with the VIX at 12 and a half, the S&P 500 at 4,600, it looks like Santa Claus is going to have the rally after all in the month of December. Interest rates um, kind of flat up a tad. 10-year, 447. The three-month T-bill, however, is 539. So you have a very inverted yield curve, which often spells recession. In fact, the three-month bill to the 10-year note, uh, when that inverts, it is virtually, I think historically since World War II anyway, almost spells recession. So Jeff Kilberg, stocks are not saying recession. Stocks look ahead by six to nine months, classically, typically. So there's a disconnect here. I don't know what, I don't know who's right and who's wrong, but there's a disconnect. There is, but I'm going to go back to where I cut my teeth in the markets, which was the 30-year futures bond pit in Chicago, the Chicago Board of Trade. And to your point exactly, Larry, what did we see in October when we really saw markets, equity markets moving lower? It was the pain. It was the doom and the gloom. And it was Fed Chairman Powell talking about raising rates more. Well, the markets for about a week after that Fed meeting in October believed him. We saw the 10-year note go above 5%, and that was max yields for the year in the 10-year note. Once the market realized that, no, this cooler inflationary data is coming in, we're in a better spot than we have heard from the Fed, what happened to the 10-year note? It dropped 60 basis points. So to your point, I think the bond leadership, bringing the 10-year back down to 4.42, where it was last week, that has allowed equities to heal from a pretty couple of rough months in September, October, and um, August as well. Jim Urio, what is the outlook here? I mean, let's uh, get right down to it. So I think that this quarter four is going to be great. I think there's a lot of people who feel wealthy. A lot of union contracts have been negotiated. A lot of people, alas, are on. I think there's going to be a massive hangover in Q1. And it's not just me saying it, too. The market still says the Fed is going to begin its eases by late spring, early summer, and by the end of 2024, have eased by 75 base points. You mentioned the yield curve being right now two versus tens is about negative 40, let's call it. And I have a steepener trade on because my thesis is that as soon as the Fed starts to realize that things are declining, and they are, small business optimism, the lowest since 2013, that's below the depth of the pandemic. You know, and, and credit card debt, $1 trillion, and the upward slope of that since April 2021 is what's really alarming to me. And I think there's a lot of bills that are coming due in the first, and I even not even mentioned commercial real estate, which I think is one of the biggest risks. And at that point in time, I think the Fed will lower rates on the short end. I think the government is too silly to stop issuing huge amounts of debt and will push bond prices yields up in the long end. And that's why I think the curve will steepen. And historically, the curve starts to steepen right when we're up, when the recession is about to begin. So that's what I believe we'll have to do. And the stocks, the stocks that's, it's all wonderful that they've done great over the last few weeks. But they're still in a massive range that where the top was put in right around when the hiking cycle began. They still have to compete against higher rates. There's no such thing as money on the sideline anymore because money on the sideline is earning 5%. So I don't love the outlook of, uh, of stocks, but I don't think it's terrible either. How about bonds, Jim? Run me down bonds. So that's why I'm that's why I'm short the long end because I just think every the last two thirty year auctions have been sloppy as heck, and these are the first auctions that the the Fed hasn't been involved in in fifteen years. So mm-hmm. the market's saying to us, "You're issuing too much debt." So I think uh, in the in the medium term, 
the government is going to do something stupid, sell too many bonds, issue too many debt, uh, issue too much debt, and it's going to drive up rates on the long end. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not interested in holding long end bonds. I am interested in, <laughs> in rolling ladders between three months and two years just to keep my, you know, the money on the sidelines making money. I think that's a beautiful place we're in. Jeff Kilberg, bonds. Yeah, I think bonds. Are, Jimmy is actually right. I believe uh, you know, you're going to see the curve state. <laughs> Yeah, sure enough. But what's fascinating to me is that, you know, the market is dictating the long end of the curve. I know Fed Chairman Paul was happy that his, you know, pounding of the microphone talking about raising rates was allowing the market to do the job for him when we saw the 10-year go about 5%. But I think the 10-year note will be tethered to 4.5% or even move lower here as we talk about these potential interest rate cuts in 2024. But we're going into a presidential election year. I don't think we're going to see the market move lower. I know we're in a post-midterm election year, which has historically always been better. We talked about that six months ago when I was cautiously optimistic. But I think as we head into Q1, the consumer is still strong. Rates are moving lower. I think this really has the ability to move the markets higher because the one thing no investors expected this market to move is up 15 20%. And if I look right now, year to date, you know, where are we at? The market's up 18%. So it's kind of a remarkable year, and I don't see the momentum fading going into Q4 or even Q1 of next year. You know what's important, fellas? Um, the dog that didn't bark. So you've got a Mideast war, and oil prices have gone, wait for it, down. That is very rare. Uh, mm -hmm. crude, crude oil went up a smidge this week, but you got... West Texas, $76.75. Brent crude, $80.58. Those things were cruising towards 100 a couple of months ago, and they've gone south. And by the by, gasoline prices have gone south. Now, that's welcome deflation, I would say. That's been a contributor to this stock market rally. Yep. There's no question, and I, you know, that's the one thing I got really wrong last time we talked a month ago. Is I thought crude was going higher, and I still think it is. And I think you know the statistics have come out uh, that the the glo global recession is starting to creep into the vernacular, and I think there's a supply thing too. One thing that that is people don't realize, like people who say like, oh, this energy policy right now is fine. We're pumping so much oil, and the the pumping of the oil right now is reflecting energy policies that were put in five or six years ago. That's how long it takes to get these projects to fruition. And the fact that we're not increasing projects now, the fact that Mike Worth said, you know, we'd never build another uh, refinery in this country due to regulatory hurdles, um, those things scare the heck out of me for oil over the next three-year period. But to your point, well, yeah, I got that one wrong. I got a couple as of long as you're talking about being scared, Jimmy, I think what's interesting is what our relationship with China is happening right now. And that China supply slash demand is really affecting crude oil. And I think as we've continued to wait for China to reopen post-COVID from all their zero-tolerance policies, that's been really opaque and really hard to measure as a professional investor, yeah. is when do we see China come back online. So that's the wild card, Larry. I don't know if tensions continue to ratchet up with the Biden administration. I don't know if we see some resolution or more demand come out of China, but that's the one thing we're having a hard time really putting our finger on. China's never going to reopen. Why should China reopen? It's a socialist, communist country. It's a state-controlled economy. The free markets of China, of Deng Xiaoping, are gone. They're gone. They're never going to reopen. Never. Wait. It's one long historical slump lasting through the end of the century.
You can quote me on that. We may not be around. We may not be around to discuss that call. But I'm just telling you, China will never reopen. The other thing, kids, is um, the Saudis don't want Iran slash Hamas to win this war. They're not going to help them. They're not going. I don't think the Saudis want higher prices. They'll live with lower prices for now. The OPEC meetings coming up when it was postponed. Is it this week or next week? I think they're going to be very benign. That's what I think. I think that. I have a different take on that. I think when oil starts to rally on its own, they could actually tighten the screws. Because I think they still hold a grudge from us selling out the SPR no. for no other reason than just no, for no. politics. No, no. It's about Iran. It's all about Iran. They don't want okay. The Gulf states secretly are rooting for Israel. They can't say that, I know, because of uh, the Middle East. But they, they're secretly rooting for Israel. They don't want Iran any more than we want Iran. I mean, I think that's changed, you know, from prior Mideast conflicts. Anyway, I think it's had a very benign influence on stocks and bonds. The fact that oil and gasoline prices have come south, helped the CPI come south. That's just interesting, just a speculation here in Thanksgiving weekend. Jeff Kilberg is the CEO of KKM Financial. And Jim Uriel, wait, wait, before we break, restaurants, give me TJM Institutional Services, but that's only part of the story. How are the Uriel restaurants doing? I'm so Chicago, glad you, we brought that up. That is, it, it, things have changed quite a bit since mid-October. Um, the same amount of foot traffic, but people are making different decisions. And revenues have one of our first significant revenue falls in you know yeah. 11 years of ownership so yeah. and, and this is we're, we're in a pretty upscale crowd too but i think there are people who are sick of paying higher prices and even with our 20 percent increases over the last year and a half we're still down 10 percent. we're doing fine compared to a lot of other restaurants but i expect a lot of closures in that if we're maybe if we're stop showing your face around the restaurant and that revenue will go back up here you that's actually a great point you you win that one the <laughs> guys are the guys a great bartender i'm just telling you here's another thought deflationary recession on the horizon deflationary recession we had inflationary recession in the first half of 2022 we may have deflationary recession in 2024 i gotta take a break they're screaming at me jim urio tjm institutional services jeff kilberg kkm financial i'm kudlow we'll be right back this is the larry kudlow show Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking stocks and everything else in the world with Jim Urio, Director of TJM Institutional Services, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. Um, Jim Urio, what's the outlook for commodities right now? See, I, I like it, and particularly ones like gold. Um, I'm still quite long gold. And I think my ultimate base case thesis is that what I said before about the government issuing too many bonds, I think there's a point in the next six months where the market realizes that our auctions might not work unless the Fed at some point in time stops quantitative tightening or, either, or God forbid, reinstitutes quantitative easing. And then I think commodities will really scream because I think the dollar will get damaged. But right now I'm, uh, I, I like the outlook, particularly the ones that, uh, as Dennis Garman used to say, hurt when you drop on your foot, uh, things like gold and silver. Really, though, gold gold hasn't rallied since 1980, has it? 
or was I sleeping? Did I miss something? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not investing in it since 1980. I'm just I mean, the, the, now. The, the, heyday, <laughs> the heyday of gold was the 70s. Don't you think? I mean, honestly, Jeff Kilberg, no I'll go to you on this. I, I need some objectivity. I mean, really, the heyday of gold was after we broke the Bretton Woods gold dollar exchange standard. And gold soared, oil soared, all commodities soared. Um, since that time, I don't know, I'd rather own stocks. You're not wrong, Larry. You're not wrong. We have seen gold move higher. It's been a function of the dollar. But I think what also has been really interesting is the way copper is traded. When we look at Dr. Copper to kind of be the bellwether to get his better understanding of the global macro picture, it's interesting. Copper is moving back above 380. I know it's a far way away from where it was you know, a year ago, call it, you know, January 2022, when it was up above $4.5. But I think commodities are really interesting right now as long as we see the U.S. dollar stay where it's at. Now, if the U.S. dollar strengthens, to Jimmy's point, if the Fed rhetoric or talks about, you know, the long end of the curve moving higher, that may change the narrative in commodities. But I think right now it's, it's a fascinating move with gold above 2000 Silver kind of being the laggard. You know, what, if you remember when gold kind of, Going back 10 years, when gold popped above 1950, silver was up at $37. So you're mm. seeing silver really being the laggard. So if you're looking for a mean reversion, maybe silver is the, the commodity to own, the, the precious metal. Oh, don't let them play us out. I got more to add to that. Are we gone? <laughs> no, you're still around, but Bunker Hunt is gone. He's gone. Okay. He, that was the last Copper. great silver play. Bunky Hunt. Copper held in, even though China is opaque and we don't can't figure out what's Jim going on. Jim Urio and Copper. Jeff Kilberg, the best of the best. Two old friends. Thank you, gentlemen. Folks, up next, we're going to do some money in politics with John McIntyre, Real Clear Politics, and Steve Moore. More money after this show, by the way, on most of these same stations. I'm Cudlow. Stick around. Lots more entertainment to come. <laughs> From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics with John McIntyre, president and CEO of Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Media, and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and WABC radio host of More Money on many of these very same stations. So, gentlemen... Uh, Welcome. Happy Thanksgiving to both of you. Um, I had some serious topics squirreled away on yeah. energy and healthcare and stuff like that. But I thought I would have some more fun. And I'm looking at the real clear politics polls. So let's see what we got here. Nationwide GOP primary Trump 60, DeSantis 13, Haley 10. In Iowa... Trump 47, DeSantis 17, Haley 14. And then just for the heck of it, um, the ultimate November matchup, Trump 47, Joe Biden 45. So John McIntyre, Donald Trump's on a roll. Question is, is it gonna continue? He is on a roll, all right? He's uh, just he's walloping everybody nationwide, Iowa. I didn't look at New Hampshire, but I'm sure it's the same thing. And he even beats Joe Biden in the process. 
So, John, what do you make of this? Trump the next president? Is it all over but the shouting? (laughs) Well, let's just say uh, that that I can guarantee you. I can guarantee you it is not all over. Uh, We are in for a a very wild uh, 11 months here until the 12 months until the next election. But, but, But you're correct that that Trump definitely is a little bit on a roll. And, you know, the problem for his Republican competitors is, in a sense, the like, I mean, the clock's running out, you know. I mean, we're here at Thanksgiving. Mm. Um, you, you got a couple more weeks till you kind of roll into the holidays. And uh, Trump's not going to be at any of the debates, okay, that, that, are, that are here in December. And then, you know, Iowa's January 15th. And New Hampshire follows pretty quickly after that. And, you know, it's it's just hard to see um, what what's going to change. What's going to be the catalyst to change the dynamic that's been going on for the last six months? You, you know, and people people talk about in the past. Well, you know, you had late surges or this or that. But I mean, those times you, you kind of had active primaries going on and you had debates and all the major candidates were participating. You don't you don't really have that in, in this Republican primary now. It's more like an incumbent president running. I mean, think about it like in Biden's standpoint. Biden's not participating in any debates. OK. And, you, you, know, when we, you know, we track the betting odds of these candidates too. Donald Trump's you know, more likely to be the Republican nominee from the better standpoint than Joe Biden is likely to be the Democratic nominee. Hmm. So, you know, I to me, the open question is just like, how quickly does the nomination wrap up? Uh, because I do think that will have an impact on the general election dynamics. And I, and I think if I think if Trump wins Iowa pretty easily and he goes in and wins New Hampshire pretty easily and then you know, the next two states, this is really over by March 1st completely. And then I think on the Republican side, you start to get things coalescing. You know, if it turns a little bit into a two-person race with Nikki Haley or something and drags out a little bit longer, you know, that could drag it out. And that, and, and, and that would probably, you know, hurt Trump's chances a little bit in the general. Steve Moore, at the beginning of this year, or if you go back um, to the midterm elections, November 2022, all right. A year ago, a year ago, I don't think a lot of people would have expected Donald Trump to have the commanding lead that he has in the GOP primary and beating Joe Biden to boot. Steve Moore, what do you think has changed? What's worked for Trump to give him this commanding lead? I think partly it's the fact that Joe Biden has been just such a horrible president. And, you know, I don't say that with any joy. I wish he had been a better president. I wish he had united the country, but he's done just the opposite. And it's hard to it's really hard to point to just about anything that he's done right as president. And I think that is so infuriated um, conservatives and Republicans that they see the Trump presidency in a much, much more positive light uh, because the market difference in performance, Larry. I mean, everything from foreign policy to building the wall to the economy to energy policy to immigration policy and on and on and on. And, I've, you know, I've said this um, for the four years now almost, that it doesn't matter whether you like Donald Trump, <laughs> do you like his policies? Mm. And that's where, you know, his policies are right right there where America is. And I, like, I don't agree with every policy that 
Trump has. I'm not a big fan of his some of his tariff policies, but you know, 90% of the things that he did were extremely successful. And I think it's, uh, look, I agree with John. I, I very much doubt at this point. I don't see how in the world Joe Biden could beat their nominee. I just mm. don't see how. that. I mean, can you imagine four more years of this? I don't think the American people could imagine that. And so, uh, but, but just you do the compare and contrast and where we were. And I always go back to the old Ronald Reagan line, uh, Larry, that was the first time I ever really paid attention to politics. In 1980, I remember in my college dorm watching the Reagan versus Carter debate. Remember that one? Mm. And Reagan looked right into that camera and he asked 100 million Americans, are you better off today than mm. you were four years ago? It wasn't complicated. And a week later, you know, um, Reagan won a landslide election. Now, I don't think this is going to be a landslide, but I think uh, I think Trump's policies are so superior to Biden's. That's the difference. But a year ago, Steve, just to follow up, a year ago, Ron DeSantis was a hot commodity yep. in the Republican mm-hmm. Party. A year later, I'll just say he's not. OK, yep. <laughs> what ac- what accounts for his yep. I mean, his decline is mirrored by Trump's rise. There may be separate issues involved in each case, but it is fascinating. You know, I remember donors left and right. I'm leaving Trump and I'm going for DeSantis. And now a lot of those donors, you know, uh, they want to they want to delete or or they want to reset. Um, And so everything's fallen wrong for DeSantis and fallen right for Trump. I think part of that, Larry, in fact, that, by the way, I just had a conversation with Ron DeSantis yesterday. We talked for about a half hour. And, and look, he's America's governor. He's been an amazing governor. No question about it. I mean, what he's done in Florida has been fantastic. And, uh, you know, it's admirable how how well he's done. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I I can't really explain why it is that he hasn't caught on. He's not charming. You know, he doesn't have that kind of Kennedy, Reagan, Trump charm. Uh, he's a chief executive. He's done all the pushed all the right buttons, but um, what did you know, he say to you? What by the way, I, my here's my advice. What, to what did he say to you, Steve? When you talked uh, to him, we, we talked. Well, what we talked about is this big debate that's coming up, which I think is huge for him, where he's debating. Uh, he's debating uh, 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 the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. Uh, yeah. Gavin Newsom. And, you know, what I said to him is, look, this is really big for the for the movement, for what we because, look, America's two countries now. It's red, red state and blue mm-hmm. state America. And I said, you've got to win this debate. You've got to pound him. And, and you know, if you take him down to the canvas, I think it'll be a big lift for him. I think people it's almost like his his lifeline is this mm-hmm. debate. Mm-hmm. And I, he, he has all the facts on his side. No question about it. But, you know, Gavin Newsom is kind of a slick guy he's very charming and we'll see but i'm i want to make sure that he hits all of the points because this is important blue state america like california is falling apart and red states like florida and texas and idaho and iowa are doing really well and Mm. so i I really hope he knocks uh newsom down because i think there's a good chance newsom could be the democratic nominee you know what larry i i i take a stab at saying where i think he he kind of you know, fell short in it. I do think a year ago, he did have a lot of promise, particularly after the disappointing 22 midterms. But he, 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 you know, he lost track of like what, of what was, I think his potential promise was just 75% of Republican voters are fully with 
Trump's programs and policies. Okay, and you know what? DeSantis sort of lost track of what made him what made him, as Steve said, America's governor. I mean, it was running in that Trump lane that had him beat Adam Putnam in his primary in in 18. It's what got him elected governor. And then he governed so, so efficiently and effectively on those policies. And the the Republican base kind of wanted to see him embrace that campaign without the drama and, and the potential negativities associated with with former President Trump. And I think, you know, I think there were two issues where he kind of stumbled it was one, you know, on on Ukraine, Republican voters are not in lockstep with where the Mitch McConnell Washington Republicans are. Mm. And he kind of didn't 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 convey that. He, he kind of waffled a little bit on that in February and March. And then he also was a little too cute, I think, with the Democrats weaponization of the wall against Trump, where he could have had an opportunity to just not play any games with that and just say, look, this is because that's what Republican voters wanted to hear. And and I think, you know, from there on out, he just seemed like he was going after the 25 percent of voters that don't like the president, mm-hmm. former president, as opposed to trying to win the 75 percent of Republican voters that do really like him. Good point. Well, all you read about in the early months of this year was DeSantis versus Disney. And I think uh, yeah. everybody else was focused on the economy. And I remember, uh, I'll put this out to both of you, but in the CNN debate, uh, it wasn't a debate, but in the so-called CNN interview, um, you know, the CNN lady asked Trump <laughs> how he was going to not... Uh, get costs down, get inflation down. And without batting an eyelash, Trump said, drill, baby, drill. And then he got a huge uh, applause. I mean, a lot of people saw that. And then Trump finished the paragraph by talking about tax cuts and deregulation, thereby Mm -hmm. outlining an economic growth plan that DeSantis should have but never got around to talking about. Right. I mean, I think DeSantis believes in the same things, but he didn't articulate it. Trump stole it right there and then build up, built on it. Trump running an issues campaign, uh, unlike 2020, this was an issues campaign, more like 2016. Mm -hmm. um, And Ron DeSantis got stuck in legal hassles with Disney. I remember Kellyanne Conway saying too much woke, not enough economy. And I, I think that really hurt DeSantis. And that. That t- I don't remember when that CNN thing was. It was in March or something, or I don't remember when it was. But it was fairly early in the year, Steve. You know, it's like yeah. this. As you say, the Trump policies very popular. So Trump um, capitalized on the Trump policies, whereas DeSantis yeah. didn't. I mean, I think that really hurt DeSantis. Well, Trump is also a really, really great politician. And I mean that, you know, I don't yeah. often like politicians, but he, you know, you and I saw him give that speech the other night, Larry, at, uh, at Mar-a-Lago with yeah. the America uh, First Policy Institute. He, he knocked it out of the park. I mean, he's yeah. so, he's so, when he has his game face on, and I think he does now, and he's not whining and complaining like he was the first year after the election. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's very likable and charming and, uh, you know, uh, you and I have had dinner with him a couple of times. I mean, he just, he seems relaxed. I don't, by the way, I don't know how he does it here. You know, Democrats want to throw him in jail for 500 years. Yeah, that's right. How yeah. he maintains his composure and his up, 
he's also optimistic. He has that Reagan optimism that I love. Mm. And, you know, John, um, Biden helped Trump by trying to throw him in jail for 750 years. <laughs> I mean, that helped Trump. No, no there's, look, that's a little bit my point with the DeSantis comedy. No question helped 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 Trump. And, and the only way a Republican running in that context would would, would to, to gain anything in a Republican primary was to attack Biden, attack Garland, attack the justice, yeah, the justice system. Right. Um, you know, and I, and I think I, I just want to reiterate what Steve said about the three points of, of when you look out to the general election that people people, it, it, you know, the issue of the wall, foreign policy and their pocketbook issues, mm. because people see that they, they, they see the they see our, our southern border issues under Trump. They see it totally different under Biden. And they're like, why? On foreign policy, they see the Ukraine mess, the Israel Hamas mess. And they think this wasn't going on when Trump was president. Mm-hmm. And then their pocketbook issues, they go, you know, every week, every month, they say, like, you know, they're going to the grocery store, they're buying gas. It's like they're like all of these are materially worse than they were at the end of 2019 pre-COVID. And Gallup actually had a poll right before right before COVID hit that said Americans were feeling better about they about their about their own daily lives mm-hmm. and at any time since the early 1980s, which yeah. is interesting. Which is the, which was the last time there was mourning in America, and I think mm-hmm. people just see this right now, and and that's, I mean, that's a millstone around Biden and the Democrats' neck. But it'll probably be a close election with Trump and yep. Biden, don't you yep. think, Steve? I mean, regardless. Yeah. Uh, of our sympathies and yeah. regardless of Trump's good showing, you got to figure the Democrats are going to do everything they can uh, to block Trump, to steal the election, to whatever. All right. I mean, it's going to be a tough election. Yeah, look, I on the 2016 election, uh, what happened at the end, in my opinion, because remember all the polls, John probably remembers this. I mean, all the polls had Trump down seven, eight points, you know, mm-hmm. on Election Day. And I, I think what happened in the end, and maybe I'm wrong, John may know this, but I think what happened, a lot of Republican women who said they weren't going to vote for Trump, I think they kind of held their nose and, vote, and voted for him. Uh, and, but they didn't vote for him, Larry, in 2020. Mm. If he can win back, in my opinion, those sort of suburban moms mm. who do care about the pocketbook issues but don't like Trump, don't like you know maybe the way he acts or some of the things he says, then I think Trump, can win, but it, it's going to be razor tight because this is a this is a country that's so polarized right now. John McIntyre, I, I got to take a break, but to Steve's last point, which is a very important point with women, GOP's got to change the subject from abortion. Well, listen, you know, I don't want to be picking on DeSantis all the time, but you you, you throw in the Disney comments, which I think are apt, but but it's also it's like. I, you know, I don't know from a political, just from a political advice standpoint, I don't know who told him a six weeks abortion ban was a good was a good you know political strategy, mm. um, it, and and it's just it it it's not because one of one of DeSantis's pitches was always going to be, hey, I'm more electable than Donald Trump, and I think I think that you know and he, and, and that passed all around the same time as all in February and March. Um, mm. you, you know, and, and, and so, you know, whereas, you know, he could have picked a, a 15 week or something that, 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 that was just going to be, you know, a, a more general election w- winning, pla- winning place to go from on that. Yeah. So, 
All right, let's take a quick break. John McIntyre, Real Clear Politics. Steve Moore, Committee to Unleash Prosperity and his uh, more money following this show on most of these same stations. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow, from Wall Street to the White House. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking money and politics with John McIntyre, President and CEO of Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Media, and Steve Moore, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and the host of WABC radio show, More Money. Uh, Steve Moore, I can't resist Kim Strassel's column, the Biden Energy Slush Fund. This is a wonderful story, okay? <laughs> yeah, right. A $400 billion pile of cash dwarfing most private green investment vehicles. Yeah. Um, it's the Energy Department Loan Programs Office, and it's run by someone named Jigar Yigar Shah. Yeah. And they're going to dole out election year money left yeah. and right. I mean, it gives new meaning to buying yeah. votes. Come on. Yeah, you better believe it. And by the way, uh, you, just to be clear on this, this is for, almost $400 billion, not $400 million. So this is yes. a gigantic slush fund. It has nothing to do with, you know, cleaning up the air or cleaning the water. It's all about channeling, you know, massive amounts of money to Democratic constituents and Democratic groups. And it's outrageous. And I keep saying, you know, when I talk to the Republican leaders in Congress, defund this thing take this money away it's a you know they keep saying gee it's so hard to find ways to cut how about cutting 400 billion dollars by the way most of these green programs are going bankrupt larry yes they are and john mcintyre you gotta hand it to the democrats unabashedly unashamedly 400 billion i mean this will all be spent during the election year if the republicans don't right. defund it i mean you just gotta hand it to them you gotta admire them the sheer chutzpah of doing this <laughs> right well, you know, there there is a there is a commitment to win that that's certainly there, and, and uh, you know, it, it, it's good. And look, and, and you, you said this; it's going to be extremely close. This is not going to be a blowout. Some of these, all these things add up in, in these close states. Um, so, by the way, can I just one, one? I know we're running out of time, but one quick thing that's so insidious about this, Larry, is that all these companies are not, you know are now chasing government dollars, yes. not private sector investment. Yes. And so, it's a huge misdirection of capital in this country. Yeah, it, it just look vote buying. There are many ways to buy votes. <laughs> this is one of them. Just like the student loan program, right? Student loans—they're going to try that, and on top of that, they're going to have everybody vote early and harvest everyone's ballots. Anyway, we're out of time. John McIntyre, Steve Moore, you're both fabulous. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, folks, I'll just say happy Thanksgiving to our listening audience. You're terrific stuff. I will be back next weekend. I'm Larry Kudlow. Take care. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.